This morning, we'll have two passages. The first will be from Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The second passage will be from Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thanks, Brian. So please turn to Ephesians 6. We'll be looking at verses 5 through 9. I know it may be hard for some of you to believe, but after today we only have four more weeks of Ephesians. Uh, but today ends a little six-week mini-series that we've been doing in the middle of Ephesians, or in the midst of it, uh, which encompasses uh, chapter 5, verse 15, through chapter 6, verse 9. And again, uh, the reason we keep reading that first paragraph, 15 through 21, in chapter 5, is because that's the foundation for everything else that we've talked about in these last six weeks, including uh, today. And so today we're going to talk more about work and employment and, and, and things like that. Uh, at, I mentioned this earlier. At Redemption Church, <clears throat> we have a, a, an essential... Uh, core uh, cultural commitment that all of life is all for Jesus. Uh, in other words, when you go out into the marketplace, we take Jesus with us. We take the light of God with us. We take the gospel with us. And so when you go to work, whatever that is, whether it's paid work or work at home, whatever that is, it's supposed to be a part of our life. So vocation. Uh, it's interesting the word vocation actually comes from the Latin word for calling. So we talk all the time about people being called into ministry, but all of us are actually called in one way, shape, or form to whatever it is that we're doing, and we need to be thinking about that as well. So the, we're going to talk a lot about work today, but why would this be considered part of the household? Because we've talked about these last six weeks about how this is Paul's version of the ancient household code. Why is this actually part of the household? Well, in the first century Mediterranean world, there were no large corporations. Amazon did not exist. AT&T did not exist. There weren't even any medium-sized corporations. Uh, business, the marketplace, commerce, all of that was done essentially by families, including the bond servants, or another word for that would be slaves. We need to understand that. Slaves, or bond servants, were part of their economic system, but we need to understand that that economic system and that the way they talk about and use slaves at that time, bond servants, is nothing like 
our understanding of our history in the United States from the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. We need to understand that it, it was completely different. And, and I want you to know, I'm not trying to excuse it. It was still tough, but it wasn't anything like what we think we know of slavery. And so we need to understand a couple things about that. Number one, um, if you're going to talk about something historically that you really haven't studied, you're going to step into some, some landmines by doing that. If you're going to talk about first century slavery through the lens of the 18th and 19th century slavery in the United States, you're going to be way off base. So if you're going to talk about that, you need to understand what you're talking about first. How many times have I said, know your history? And here's another reason why we need to know our history. Because it is passages like these in the New Testament that slave owners in the United States during that time used in order to justify the type of slavery that we had in this country, which, which was absolutely wrong. It was a wrong application of the text because they did not understand the historical understanding of a bondservant in the first century, or if they did, they denied it and simply lied about it. Very important to understand. Very important to understand. At any rate, at the time, in the first century, there were only small businesses, the size of which was dictated strictly by your family and your household. In effect, what we would call today the marketplace was, was, was so much a part of the home as the public square is. Here you go, kind of like the way business is moving again today. How many of you work from home now today? Yeah, there are tons. That, that's a growing uh, part of our, of our world. So we're going to un unpack the passage, and then we're going to try very hard to give us some applications. So verse 5, bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Obey as you would Christ. Listen under as you would Christ. Here's what Paul is saying. No matter where God has you in life, your call as a follower of Christ your call in the gospel is to serve and to serve well because that is exactly how Christ has served us. That's what we have to keep in mind. We are going back to 521. Out of reverence for Christ, because of the cross of Christ, because of what he submitted to, we are to submit to one another. And of course, Paul is going to get to the to the masters as well, which is unheard of in his cultural context, but right now he's talking to the bond service. We often today focus on the unfairness and the inequality of the marketplace and employment, and, and that may, may well be true, and, and there are times when we probably should talk about that. But it is never, ever an excuse to not do your best with great passion and joy in Christ if you are a follower of Christ. These verses apply today as much or more than they did in the first century in Paul's context. Peter O'Brien, the New Testament scholar, writes this, A worker's motivation and standards for workmanship are to be the best possible because they are done for the sake of Christ. And once again, as we've been saying all along in this section of Ephesians, the only way anyone can possibly have the power to submit to, honor, respect, obey, and serve others the way Paul calls, calls bondservants and masters, employees and employers, subordinates and supervisors, is that it is first to Jesus. 
it is first to Jesus. In his excellent book, Love Walked Among Us, Paul Miller talks about first things and next things. There are first things, foundational things, and then there are next things. The first thing is to Jesus, always to Jesus. The first thing is the gospel. The first thing is God and his word and his people. The first thing is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Those are the first things. And we have to get those right before we can move on to the next things. But as Miller astutely points out, we live in a culture of next things. Next things. No, 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 no. I want the next things. I want the next things. I want the next things. Here you go. It's the person who wants to do calculus without knowing how to do algebra. It's the person who wants the six-figure income in the corner office right out of the gate without any experience, without any knowledge of the marketplace, without any understanding of how the company works. We live in a next things culture. We need to understand the first things. This is all about submitting first and foremost in our, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our churches, in, in, in our uh, households, in our, with our children and our, and our parents, and in our work, first and foremost, submitting to Christ. Uh, Robert Lane Green wrote a great book uh, for word nerds like me. It's, it's, it's called You Are What You Speak. It's a book about word origins. And one of the things he wrote in there is that he was talking about public speaking, public speakers. And he said, public speaking is like jazz. He said, first, you learn the basics. Then you get good enough to improvise. And I teach public speaking, and that's one of the foundational things that I have to drill into students. There are so many students who just want to get up there and Anything I have to say is going to be awesome because I get three likes on Twitter all the time. Mm, no, you need to learn the first things. There are basics that you really need to learn. And he says we're to do this with a sincere heart. That word sincere, here you go. This is funny. This is why I love studying words. That Greek word sincere literally means without folds. What? Without folds. A heart without folds. It means a heart that is not overcomplicated or layered. Stated in a more positive way, it's a heart that is single-minded, focused, and generous. It is a heart that is not folded in on itself. In other words, we focus on Christ and our hearts become single-minded and generous. When we complicate our hearts with many competing messages, and this world has many competing messages... We get hung up on all the reasons not to live a gospel-centered life. We need sincere hearts, unfolded hearts. And notice the pattern again. Paul starts with a uh, behavior to turn away from, but doesn't stop there. He calls us to something that is much, much better. And again, it's the picture of repentance. Jesus is always better than the, than the thing that you are being called to turn away from. He's always better. And he says that we're to do this with fear and trembling. Fear literally means respect. And trembling means a sure recognition of the authority of another. Now, he's talking about bondservants recognizing the authority of their masters. But he's also, later on in this passage, he's going to talk to the masters about how they need to be humble, gentle, sacrificial, and have a relationship with their subordinates as well. And by the way, let me just throw this in here. I said I was going to mention this. If you want to know more... It, it, I, I would love to be able to unpack this idea of the first century bondservant more. 
so that we can have a greater understanding. I'm actually going to do that Wednesday night in this, uh, um, this is a shameless plug for the Wednesday night study. I'm, we're, we're looking at postcards uh, from heaven, the New Testament postcards. We're doing Philemon, which is all about this issue. And so we're going to have a much deeper look at that because I have no time constraints there. So we'll be here till 10 or 11 o'clock at night. So you can come and, and do that. So we're going to be doing that this coming Wednesday night. But what we also need to understand here is that when we hear about slavery here, Paul is not condoning slavery. He's not. But he is talking about a gospel-centered existence inside a less-than-ideal system. How many of you feel like you live inside a less-than-ideal system? Every hand should go up. Every hand should go up. That's one of the reasons why we need the gospel. Verse 6, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. One of the most common idols in our world today, one of the most common false gods in our world today is people pleasing. It's looking good. It's making sure that our image that others have of us is impeccable. It's the lies that we put on our social media profiles and our resumes. It's all of that. It's a facade of virtue Here you go, masking a heart of desperate insecurity. That's what it is. And it gets us into trouble. It gets us into trouble vertically and horizontally, with God and with others. When we value the opinions of others more than the wisdom and favor of God, we are giving our hearts to and worshiping ourselves and the opinions of others over God. And that's a problem. That is a false God. I, did, I, I didn't plan this, but did you hear Lacey and how she wrestled with that? And I'm sure that BJ and Heather did too. It's just that they're a little bit further from that time in their life right now. Our call is not to the affirmation of others, but it is to trust God in all contexts. Family, vocation, marriage, community, everything. Verse 7 Rendering service with a goodwill as to the Lord, not to man. With a goodwill, literally rendering your service enthusiastically and with passion. So I, last year I read a bunch of books on preaching. I wanted to improve that. Um, this year I don't know what I'm trying to improve, but for some reason I've been on a tear reading biographies. And right, uh, I'm in the middle of Rain Wilson's biography right now, so some really deep stuff. Some of you don't know who he is, but when I say Dwight Schrute, you do know who he is. That's who it is, anyway. Um, By the way, Dwight wrote part of his biography for him. So, Um, Anyway, this summer I read one right after the other, the biographies of Robert De Niro and then Chris Pratt. So De Niro is in his late 70s, Pratt's, what, 39? So... And, and think about Robert De Niro and Chris Pratt. Could you have two more different people at all? Two more completely different people. Here's the thing that Robert De Niro and Chris Pratt had in, have in common. When they were both starting out, when they were both struggling, when they were both eating dirt, every part they got. De Niro talks about a part he got where he was being paid $50 a month. 50 bucks a month. Every part they got, they focused on doing that part with great excellence with enthusiasm and with passion, not thinking about how this might lead to the next part. They just wanted to make sure they got this part right, no matter how awful or belittling or small it was. 
And I think that might be part of why they are successful today, because they weren't looking to the next thing. They were looking at this thing right here. Paul writes in verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. There's certainly a sense that God remembers the righteousness of his people. Grace and forgiveness doesn't mean that we can behave any way that we please. It means that we are called. All of us are called, and God remembers. Um, John Wooden wrote a book. Some of you may remember who John Wooden was. He was the basketball coach at UCLA, kind of successful. Anyway, he, he writes this. Uh, Theatrical producer Oscar Hammerstein II once remarked on an aerial photo of the Statue of Liberty taken from a helicopter. He described how the photo revealed finely etched strands of hair atop the head of Lady Liberty, details placed there by Frederick August Bartoli, the, the artist, the person who built the statue. It's important to remember that the Statue of Liberty was dedicated in New York Harbor on October 28, 1886, almost two decades before the Wright brothers' first flight. In those days, no one believed that human beings would ever be able to fly over the Statue of Liberty and look down on the top of Lady Liberty's head. Yet Bartoldi refused to cut corners with his sculpture. He paid attention to the little things, to the fine details he thought no one would ever see. See, we're not supposed to be giving eye service to others but we're supposed to be thinking that God is watching and he sees, he sees absolutely everything. And then in verse 9, Paul writes, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Uh, stop your threatening. Here you go. Again, I'm not excusing this system at all, this first century system. And in fact, there were problems in that system, just like any other system. Today, we have harsh bosses. Some of you would use the term taskmaster. We, we still have that today, even though we don't have, quote, a system of slavery. We have to understand that in any system, there are going to be challenges and problems. And again, that's why the gospel is so important. But this um, verse is also a strong reminder that God does not show any partiality whatsoever, and we need to remember that. It's an acknowledgement that masters, bosses, supervisors can abuse their power and God is watching. And both of them are subject to a higher authority. As the master and slave both share in the inheritance of the kingdom of God together, there is a hope and reason for the master to remember their responsibility in Christ to the bondservant. Just as the bondservant is to remember their responsibility to the boss. Bosses, Supervisors, employers, business owners, are you getting this? Employees, are you getting this? And this is really interesting too. We've talked about how this section of Paul's household code is strikingly similar to others of his era that weren't Christian household codes. And, and, and those other household codes specifically were written so that the master, the man, the adult male had all of the submitting and service coming to him and none of it flowing out of him. Paul reminds us that bondservants and masters are spiritual equals. And this was also revolutionary. In fact, 
There was a time, a couple hundred years, well, 300, 400 years earlier, that Aristotle was given this suggestion by somebody. It's recorded. That perhaps slaves and masters, while being on different levels in this world, were spiritual equals, and Aristotle bristled violently against this notion. He believed that there was a reason there were masters and slaves, and that there was something better and special in God's eyes about masters than, than slaves. Paul, however, says that there is no doubt that they are equal in the eyes of God. Different roles, but of equal value to God. And the master needs to remember that. But the reality is, segue into application, the reality is that work is hard, right? That whole Genesis 3 thing has come true. It's toilsome. It's hard. It's, it's part of the curse of, of Genesis 3. It's hard for everyone, whether you're at home, taking care of a family, or out in the marketplace, whatever you're doing, selling something, making something. And I want to I talk about this in my context for just a minute. I was reading a book. I read a book, the whole thing. <laughs> I'm a North High School graduate. That's like an accomplishment, okay? So, uh, it's called Canoeing the Mountains. And, and I, I love the book. It's it, it was very helpful, but there was one thing in there that the author, Todd Bolsinger, who was a, a pastor and a professor of theology at Fuller Theological Seminary, uh, he did, and, and I disagreed with it. He cites research that claims that 53% of pastors would do something else for the same money if given the opportunity. I don't dispute that, that statistic. I, I know that that statistic is right. I, I, I don't care for how he used it, though. It bothers me for several reasons, and maybe not why you, why you might think. I'll give you four. Here's the first one. He cites this research about pastors, but neglects to tell the reader that the research shows that this is true of every single job. There really isn't any job that has a 50% favorability rate with the people who do it. We're all discontent in our jobs, every one of us, no matter how much money we make every job, every vocation, every career, every profession, we're all looking somewhere else. Second, he cites it to make sure the reader knows how terribly hard it is to be a pastor. And he's correct, it is. But guess what? It's also hard to run a business. It's also, I came out of the marketplace, you can't fool me. It's also hard to design buildings for clients. It's also hard to Craft a cup of coffee for freaked out customers who have 97 special orders for one stupid cup of coffee. <laughs> There's my Dwight Schrute movement moment. It's also hard to be a food server. It's also hard to be an accountant. It's hard to be a teacher. It's hard to sell products. It's hard to be a graphic designer, especially a successful one. It's also hard to be an attorney or a physician. Should I go on? You getting the point here? It's hard. It's hard. Third, being a pastor is hard, but it's also a specific calling, just like I believe anything is. But it's a specific calling, and it's not just a job. If you're, if you're do, really, if you're doing anything and you're a Christian and you look at it as just a job, we need to have an attitude adjustment. But especially as a pastor, if you're a pastor and it's just a job, isn't that a problem? Read the Bible. Nothing ever, nothing ever in, the, in the Bible promises a pastor or minister a bed of roses. But it does promise the presence of God. And fourth, I'm part of the 47%. And 
and I'm really thankful for the 47%. Even on our worst day, we need to hang in there with our call because God is with us. And yes, you've heard me talk about this before, there is Bread Truck Monday. Those days when we'd rather just be left alone, those days when we fantasize about going to work at 8 in the morning, driving a truck for 9 hours, and then going home and, and not having anybody text us, call us, stop by the house, email us, talk about us, or anything. Just get a Pizza Hut pizza and a big gulp and go to bed. <laughs> but that's different than spending your whole life sorry that you did what you did in your career. Besides, everyone needs rest. It's called the Sabbath. So how does this translate to your job? Number one, I think the biggest thing is contentment. We need to be content. It's one of my favorite Tom Schrader lines, which, which always troubles some people, but here's how he says it. He says, listen, you need to remember that no matter how bad it gets, it can only last a lifetime. Now, how bad it is, the worst, our worst situations in life, do they ever last a lifetime? Rarely. There is an end at some point. But even if it does last a lifetime, it's a dot in the midst of eternity with Jesus, and we need to remember that. Contentment. Be content with who you are, where you are, who you're with, and what you're doing. And if God calls you to something else, great. But don't manufacture that call. Here's second Everyone needs to see their job as a calling and not just a career. We all need to see what we're doing as a calling, because it is. You look at this passage and you realize that Paul is saying everything is a calling. You look at how he writes about this in Colossians chapter 3, and he writes the same way. Everything is a calling. Paul is telling everyone that they are called to be ministers and servers in their jobs, whatever they are doing. And, and, and here you go. We need, to, we need to forget this idea that we are going to make a difference in the world. And we need to start focusing on making a difference in our world. Every one of us has a mission field, all of us, and it's right in front of us. It's not somewhere else. It's right in front of us. Again, Paul Miller, first things, second things. Jesus says, you have been faithful with a little, I will give you much. Jesus does not say, I have no idea how you can handle a little, but I'm going to trust you with a lot. He doesn't say that. First things are about all of life. First things are approaching life with the mind and character of Christ. First things is developing your character as one of humility, patience, perseverance, faithfulness, and love before you can ask for the big stuff. It's, it's about being faithful in the marketplace or the home in spite of all the potential costs. All of life is all for Jesus. It means we integrate Jesus into everything that we do rather than segmenting it out. Rather than come, Sunday is our Jesus day and the rest of the week all bets are off. It's integrated into everything. And, and, and we need to remember there's this false dichotomy in the 20th and 21st century American evangelical culture that says that people who work for churches are the only ones that are serving God. That is just not true. And the churches and the pastors who in the past have encouraged that attitude were dead wrong about that. Everybody is doing work for God. If you embrace that idea that, that just only people who work at churches are working for God, it means that 99.5% of Christians aren't doing anything for God because they're not in professional ministry. Read your Bible, though. The gospel is not only supposed to permeate all we do, it is supposed to add value to those around us. 
especially at work. First things are a matter of character more than circumstances. First things are a matter of substance more than form. So be a manager. Be a musician. Be an architect. Be an artist. Be a parent. Be a politician. Be an athlete. Be a lawyer. Be a barista. But above all, be a disciple of Christ. Mark Laberton, president of Fuller Theological Seminary, recently wrote a book titled, Called. And, and he has a subtitle for it. I, I, I would just say it's how the gospel is and should be infused into all we do. And he, and he writes this. Ken grew up in a devout pastor's home. He was a pastor's kid in an urban setting. Personal faith and action were always one for Ken. His heart was for Jesus uh, uh, to transform cities. Though he sensed God might be calling him to pastoral ministry, he was more interested in serving the world through a kind of change that involved engineering and a career of public service, building roads and bridges that might shape the lives of ordinary people and neighborhoods every day. This has been the way of knitting the inner and outer gospel life together. Faith in action is his daily mantra. He seeks to live his faith tangibly by loving people with the right bridge in the right place through the right process. Ken said, I think God took my desire to go in this direction and honored it through the application of the gospel to everyday living and the workplace. And I know some of you here, that, okay, that's an engineer, and boy, there's, you know, architects and lawyers and physicians and accountants. Okay, here, here you go. Th those of you who are serving food or crafting coffee, you, you, you may think what you're doing is unimportant, but you need to remember that as you're serving food to people, and by the way, I was in the restaurant business for a while. I know that food customers can really tick you off. Amen? Yeah, so sorry, we don't have a lot of food servers here apparently, but... It, <laughs> Some who have been. Anyway, li listen to this now. You think about the creation story of Genesis 1 and 2 and the creation mandate that God gave us in that garden, that we were to tend and keep the garden and that we were to become creators ourselves out of what God gave us so that we could bless and add value to others. That's the original plan. You think about when I go to Zinburger and, and the food server comes over with my bacon double cheeseburger, which is the only thing I order there, and a glass of iced tea, Think about all the creation stories it took to be able to get that bacon double cheeseburger and iced tea to my table. Just so that I could be blessed with one of the best hamburgers that's ever been made. And I, by the way, I, I don't know Sam Fox. I have nothing to do with him, okay? I, it just is. It's a good cheeseburger. And some of you might say, well, you can do that yourself at home. Yeah, it just never turns out the same for whatever reason. Do you understand what I'm saying? We are image-bearing God when we serve food, when we craft a cup of coffee, when we design a building, when we operate on children as a pediatric surgeon, whatever it is, we're bearing the image of God in the midst of that. Jeremiah, in chapter 29 of that Old Testament prophecy, it's somewhere in the Old Testament. I know it is here somewhere. Okay. Uh, Jeremiah is writing a letter that God wants him to write to the exiles, the Jewish exiles in Babylon. They've lost this. They, they were blown out in this war with Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar just wiped them out. 
went into Jerusalem and, and, and not only took down the walls of the city, but dug up the foundations of the wall just to make sure that the Jews understood that he was in charge and then carted 70,000 of them off to Babylon where they were uh, repositioned to live. And of course, they wanted to come back right away to their promised land, their homeland. And Jeremiah writes this, them this letter from, from God. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. They're in exile. They don't want to be there. They're oppressed. And to the priests, the prophets, and all the people who Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is in the um, early uh, 6th century B.C. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. He's saying put down some roots in Babylon. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That's where we find our welfare is by serving others and being concerned about the city or wherever it is that we're living. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. In other words, there are people there saying, you're only going to be here a few weeks or maybe a couple of months. You're going to get to go back to Jerusalem soon. And oh, by the way, God doesn't know what he's doing. Follow me. We have those same messages today. They're living in exile. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, in other words, when you're all dead and maybe your grandchildren are alive, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and hope. That's the context of that very famous verse, by the way. It's you're in exile. How many times do we quote that verse about ourselves that God is going to prosper me with comfort and ease? No, you're in exile. That's the context of that verse. We have got to understand, even in the United States, as followers of Christ, we are not living in the promised land. We are living in exile. We are not the majority worldview. This idea of serving and loving the city is not the majority worldview. And the problem with having a promised land mentality about our life is that promised land attitudes are characterized by entitlement, lofty expectations of privilege and ease and superiority. Exile attitudes are characterized by humility, empathy, service, perseverance, joy, and gratitude. That's what should be characterizing us as followers of Christ. You know, the Jews, even when they went back to Jerusalem in the first century in which Jesus ministered, the Jews were at home in Jerusalem. They had rebuilt the temple and they had rebuilt the wall and yet they were still living in exile in their home. Why? Because of the Romans. They were living in exile in their own homes and they hated the Romans and the occupying force. And what did Jesus call them to in exile? He said what? Go the extra mile. 
So have an exilic mind, not a promised land mind. One more story from Laberton's book. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel and the gospel at work. A few years back, I was involved in a long process of getting clarity from the IRS about a particular technical and complicated aspect of my taxes. After several months of correspondence and legal advice, the day finally came to begin the talks in person with the IRS. Those who knew the IRS suggested that this process could take many months, perhaps longer, to be settled. I went to the IRS office in Oakland and waited, and waited, and I waited. Eventually, I was escorted through a labyrinth of cubicles to the one where I was to meet the agent who would assist me. Alone in the bowels of a large IRS office, without hope, yes, I think that captures the ethos. The agent there listened to my case, took all of the relevant notes and paperwork, and excused herself to consult with someone else. I waited 15 minutes, then 20 minutes, then 25 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 45 minutes. No one checked in. As far as I could tell, the agent had simply disappeared. No apparent sign of life, just a cubicle in a cubicle void. Suddenly, the agent was back. She handed me a sheet of paper and said simply, there, it's all done. I honestly didn't know what she meant. I assumed she was saying that she had taken the first of many steps. But what she meant was that the whole process was settled. She turned the paper over and revealed the nine signatures she had acquired all the way up the IRS letter, ladder so that the case was now closed and closed in my favor. There in the midst of a catacomb of bureau bureaucratic anonymity and powerlessness, I encountered a person who became my advocate, who heard my appeal and who took the initiative to do on my behalf what I could have never done for myself. She met me at a moment of isolation and fear and sent me out with resolution when I had anticipated nothing but delay. It's a story of what Jesus does for us. It's so perfect. Think of yourself as an advocate in the marketplace in whatever you're doing. I know it's hard. But you're sent there with the gospel, filled with the Holy Spirit, with Jesus. Two things about these last six weeks that I just want to say before we close. This section from 515 to 69. First of all, here's the human condition. We need to recognize this. When we are under authority, we want to rebel and stick it to the man. When we have the authority, we use it to control, oppress, and elevate self. Paul is pushing against both of those notions. And finally, the scholar S.M. Baugh writes this, if Paul's clear teaching about the privileges of and demands upon the Christian household were taken seriously by 21st century Christians, then personal relationships within families, households, and the marketplace would truly be a foretaste of heaven. Furthermore, others who see how Christians love, serve, and submit to one another might actually be attracted to the ethic of the gospel that we should be living. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for how your gospel changes everything. How we, we take what the world sees and, and, and we infuse it, and not only infuse it, but we mandate the gospel, its ethic, and, and the idea of advocacy, and the idea of excellence in all that we do. 
because that's what Jesus did for us. Jesus was our advocate, and he humbly and excellently went to the cross for us. Let us just be reminded of that every day. Let us preach the gospel to ourselves every single day when we go out, wherever that is, in our homes and in the marketplace. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.